Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest tactical and strategic news from Ukraine. We hear what life was like for ordinary Ukrainians living under Russian occupation, and we answer your questions on the conflict. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 7th, day 43, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, deputy foreign editor Theo Mers, and assistant comment editor Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom Nichols for the latest updates from the front line. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So more shelling in the Donbass as the focus shifts to the east of the country. Uh, contested areas still around Sunni, uh, Sumi and uh, Kharkiv uh, in the sort of northeast. It, it seems clear now from the north of Kiev and uh, up around the, the very north of the country, around Chernihiv, um, although the MP, uh, Ukrainian MP, for Chernihiv, Alessia Vasilenko said that, that she's recommending people don't go back to their homes in Chernihiv, um, warning of landmines and, and various other uh, booby traps that have been left by the um, withdrawing Russian forces. So, uh, again, generally, generally quiet in terms of um, armoured offensive action, but uh, relying on, these, uh, on the artillery and, uh, and missile strikes still. And one issue for, for Ukraine seems to be supplies. Ukraine has said it knows how to win the war against Russia and has called on NATO nations to provide it with more weapons. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? What are they asking for? And what does, this, what does this show us about the state of Ukraine's army right now? This came from the NATO meeting that's in, in Brussels yesterday and finishes today. The Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleba has been, has been there and he addressed, uh, addressed NATO um, and, and said, my, my agenda is simple. It's weapons, weapons, weapons. So he's, he's making very clear that um, uh, that they are they are feeling that they Ukraine feels feels like it can it can win this. That's what the White House press spokesman said yesterday. So they are demonstrating the ability to win. All they need now is to be supplied. And actually, interestingly, yesterday, yesterday the U.S. Um, uh, U.S. Congress voted to to enact a, a lend lease act, which we we may remember from the Second World War, as a way of of expediting kit to uh, to a country in question without having to go through all the sort of usual foreign military sales 
bobbins and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yes, it, it's it's sort of moving into, if not attritional, then industrial warfare. Who can who can get the most stuff into the into the area of battle the fastest? Um, and in that, Ukraine are calling for uh, tanks, armor, artillery, and the counter battery stuff and counter battery fire ability, loitering munitions. Um, precision-guided munitions uh, in order to be able to take on not only the Russian artillery groups that are still pulverizing um, Ukrainian civilian areas, but also if the focus of the next fight is going to be in the Donbass, and we'll talk about why why that's going to come into into sharp focus in the next few weeks in a little while, I think. But if if it's going to, if going back to that more air quotes conventional battle, then it's combined arms equipment it's it's tanks working with infantry working with precision guided uh, munitions from artillery units uh, and so on and so forth all backed up by a robust logistic plan and we've seen russia fall foul of that in the first few weeks of the war so yes it, it's it's now moving into a, a very industrial um fo- uh, focus uh, not that we're suggesting ukraine will phys- physically build stuff itself now it's how much stuff can you get in there quickly how many capabilities can the Western forces uh, push into into Ukraine and and train the crews and the maintainers as well. It's not just having the stuff; it's being able to being able to keep it going. Um, that's where the, the focus is now. Francis Turley. If I could just build on what Don has just said, I think strategically this is um, a, a significant shift. Of course, um, originally when this conflict began. Part of the reasons why the Ukrainians have been able to fight so effectively was they are fighting a defensive war, um, and and it's much easier to to, to defend than to attack. The, the the primary reason why it has become now so essential for um, uh, for tanks to be being delivered to Ukraine, and from the perspective of the Ukrainians, is the infantry is not enough um, when you're on the attack. And clearly now they are hoping to 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 uh, drive the Russian forces um, further out of Ukraine. Um, we know that the, the Czechs have have, have, um, have already given tanks, um, but the reason why I think this is so distressing for uh, Zelensky is that there are numerous examples of, of, of tanks, particularly in Germany, that are due to be scrapped, that are literally sitting there and which could be being sent to, to the front lines of, uh, of Ukraine at any time. And part of the reason why that didn't take place was because of this um, fear of, 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 of it being perceived by, by Putin, by Russia as, as an escalation. But it would just seem that the ground is, is shifting is shifting on that. Um, just one other thought on on the the military situation. I think it's also significant uh, that nothing, nobody seems to be commenting on the fact that the the weather is now starting to to change as we move into into spring. That winter weather, which which. Um, makes using t- tanks and, and and other other heavy warfare um, uh, weaponry challenging to, to 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 use. You know when you've got frozen roads and things, it's even more challenging uh, when that, those roads turn to quagmires. Um, and furthermore, when one is fighting guerrilla style strat- uh, tactics such as those being deployed by the Ukrainians, when you have foliage, when you have um, places in which to 
um, to hide and be able to snipe from more easily, um, which they will have in the coming uh, coming weeks. This again will, will play, I would argue, to, in, in, in more favourably to the Ukrainians than to to the Russians. But I'm sure Dom has a has a few more thoughts on that. But yes, as I say, the shift from from winter to spring, I think, is something that that may well play into this quite significantly. Well, before that, just quickly, Theo, would you like to come in on, on any of this? There are a few other updates I think we should talk about. There's a, a video um, verified by the New York Times, which appears to be a, a war crime by Ukrainian soldiers. And there's also a, an update from Ma- uh, Mariupol, the accusations that Russia is using mobile crematoriums. Could you, could you talk to these two stories? Yes, well, we've we've seen that this um, this video, which does show Ukrainian soldiers, a, a very graphic video that shows Ukrainian soldiers killing Russian prisoners of of war, which would constitute a a war crime. And also, as you say, in in Mariupol, this order to uh, fire on civilians, we've also seen that um, in Butcher, where there was the the massacre that was uncovered last week or at the start of, of this week, more audio has been released today through the the German media with with very similar instructions being given from Russian commanders to to open fire on on non combatants, which obviously is a is a war crime as as well. And the the other update from today and from the last two days really is that more and more of these areas that were occupied by Russia are now back at least temporarily under Ukrainian control and that means journalists are able to go there and and get the story out of what has been going on obviously we know about butcher already the the massacre there the the war crimes and now we're seeing that repeated in in other areas mass graves kidnapping uh, reports of summary executions a very very grim picture unfolding or emerging of life under this uh, under this Russian occupation, and one of our correspondents in Ukraine, who I've just been speaking to, Daniel uh, Sheridan, is in Chernihiv today uh, and has been able to see w- what it's what it's like op- opening up now. And she was telling me that it's the the first day that they've had electricity there in a month, and everyone is running to charge their mobile phones to be able to speak with family and friends in other parts of Ukraine to find out how they are, whether they're alive or, or dead. So it's a, a really emotional time in in those places and a really grim picture that is coming out of there. In today's Telegraph, there's a, a story talking about how in the Russian high command, they're looking for big victories before May the 9th. Why is this date important and what might their push, and potentially this is where we bring in what, what Don mentioned earlier about the importance of the Donbass and the move towards the Donbass, but why, why May the 9th, Theo? What, what's the importance of that date? Well, May the 9th is Victory Day in, in Russia. It's a celebration of its victory over Nazi Germany and in Moscow and actually in, in cities all across the country they have military parades, though Moscow is obviously the most significant and they will often uh, do some significant sabre rattling, bring out the the latest uh, weaponry to um, for a parade through the streets as well as many soldiers. Um, and it's, it's a celebration that's become increasingly important over the last two decades of 
of Putin's rule when he came into power, it wasn't such a a massive event in Russia. And the, the reason why it's become more and more important is it's part of his policy or aim of making Russia great again and focusing on these victorious moments in its history rather than the the many difficult or complicated moments in its history and highlighting this idea or forcing this idea on people it's you're not allowed to to question it legally that um russia essentially saved the world um with its battle against nazism which obviously the soviet union played a, a huge role in in that and um, have the the largest losses of of any country in the conflict, but it's it's got to a point now where you're not allowed to question any uh, anything around the the official narrative. And obviously, there are very questionable um, elements in how the Soviet Union related to Nazi Germany. Obviously, the non-aggression pact that um that kept the soviet union out of the the war for the first couple of years divided up um divided up europe into into spheres of influence between germany and and the soviet union so it's become this it's become this event which is is not questioned and is not critically examined and it's an increasingly totalitarian focal point of of russian culture and for that reason putin is really going to want to have another victory that he is able to to tack on to the the victory day celebrations this year so it it may see an increased push in hostilities in ukraine Tom and Francis, I don't know if you want to to answer that what what might this mean for for the russian redeployment and a next assault yeah, so we had a brief yesterday from a Western official, a tactical update there. He was saying that the assessment is that of the 125 Russian battalion tactical groups that went into Ukraine, uh, 20, uh, 29 of them are now not not combat effective. That's the military term. I they they are they just been they've been smashed up. They they are not they cannot get back in the fight now. They need to be either completely repaired themselves or blobbed together with other units to have any kind of any kind of effect so that's you know it's almost a quarter of the force that's a massive a massive hit that russia has taken there um and as we mentioned yesterday this reconstitution effort in belarus which reconstitution is is um regenerating the the people and the and the equipment that's broken and also reorganizing the structures and the and the units and formations um that you want to fight with is a massive undertaking and the assessment is uh, again, from the official, uh, the figure that was that was quoted from from the uh, from the White House of, of three to four weeks, um, they agreed with that. So, so you've got this huge uh, Russian effort in Belarus to to fix itself, fix the army um, that's broken up there. Huge, huge proportion of the of the, the total number of troops that went in, uh, and it's going to take three or four weeks. Well, you know, May the ninth is just over four weeks' time from now. So, if Putin wants this this victory. Um, in the Donbass to, to claim uh, to claim something or as Russia would have it that's that's been the whole plan all along um, but regardless to have this victory in a little over four weeks time when you've got a huge proportion of your force that is broken and is going to take three or four weeks to get back on its feet let alone travel to the area and then fight um, it's a huge undertaking so either um, you're, you're left with 
the political imperative, possibly from Putin, to uh, to say, well, you know, get in there, generals. We, this is what we need to. This is what need to happen. Um, and if the if the senior military leadership are able to turn around and say truth to power and say, well, we can't do it. We need we need longer. That would be interesting. And there's been no evidence of that so far because they've they did they weren't able to do that in the first few weeks of the war. Um, so if there's if there is resistance that that might speak of a of a more professional army and a more confident army that's able to, to to say truth to power but if there's a sudden rush if over the next few days and into the next week or two we we see russia throwing itself at the at the donbass that that will be very interesting in itself because that will speak of, of of a panic to get something done quickly um of an of an, a, a continued inability to speak truth to power and say we're just not ready um, and they will they will not be in in a shape to do so so perversely and bizarrely um, operations in the donbass now if we if we would say wake up tomorrow and see headlines of russia launches massive attack into the uh, into the donbass that might perversely actually be quite a good thing from the ukrainian point of view because those forces will be under equipped they um they are still traveling in in single convoys along roads and just getting hit by Ukrainian um, anti-tank squads. So they've, they've not adjusted their tactics. If they go quickly, they're probably going to um, come unstuck again. Uh, but there is this there is this political imperative, we think, from Putin to get something by, by May the 9th. So it, it's going to be a very, very interesting next couple of weeks to see, uh, to see what happens. And of course, on the Ukrainian side, there's the rush to get... Um, equipment into the area. Uh, any Russian action in the Donbass to to envelop sort of south from Kharkiv and north from Mariupol, um, you could look at it as well. That's going to squeeze those ten brigades of of Ukrainian troops in the Donbass. But of course, every circle has an outer edge as well, and any enveloping action to try and squeeze the Donbass has got a very exposed flank from the Dnipro area and from the west of the country. So you know, this is by no means a given that even if Russia get there in in any numbers that they're going to be able to do something. But uh, the, the sooner they do something would probably be better for Ukraine. Um, I think that would speak a lot of quite where that conversation is between the senior leadership uh, military leadership and Putin now about whether or not they they can resist this political pressure to get something done by May the ninth, um, and actually are able to say we need time to to reconstitute ourselves. Uh, there's been no evidence of that so far, but it's certainly one that will will speak volumes. Thanks, thanks very much, Don. Before we talk about your your article on the Ukrainian um, and Russian tank battle, which is absolutely fascinating, I'd advise everyone to go to the Telegraph website and, and read it because it, Don provides a. a a deep look at the tactics and the thinking behind what's actually going on in this extraordinary piece of footage from from Ukraine. I think there's a couple of diplomatic things we need to talk about quickly. So there's been lots of movement in Brussels uh, on Russian Russian energy imports. Francis. Yes, there's been a lot of movement in the last few days and hours indeed about uh, from within the European Parliament and from within Europe generally. And as it will come as no surprise viewing the horrific atrocities that have taken place and or have been discovered in in recent days that the european 
political uh, elite has decided that that actually um, now if if there is ever going to be a moment to to have a full scale embargo on Russian gas and oil that it, it is at this where they can you know rally their own people behind it um, it is this moment um, there was a vote today in the European Parliament that is urging countries to go for a full embargo um, but that is not yet sort of it's not not been completely validated it's not going to happen overnight but this is showing a, a, a very much a consensus uh, that, that there is a desire to do that um, more broadly on on this point of, of negotiations we've obviously been following very closely um, the uh, negotiations are taking place in Turkey between the Russians and the Ukrainians and in the same way that the the atrocities have have had an impact on the energy debate within Europe, it's also had a, a, a significant, we hear, um, effect on the talks there. Effectively, it seems that it's derailed those peace talks quite significantly. Um, that's that's um, a, a more or less a quotation from Erdogan's top advisor. Um, and we're also hearing that Russia wants sanctions relief as part of any potential deal that seems increasingly unlikely given um the the state of things as they currently are so it would appear that 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 uh, on the on at least on as far as negotiations and the political maneuverings are concerned that things are becoming increasingly difficult for for russia as we've been predicting on this podcast for several weeks now we'll return to our panel in a bit On the front page of today's Daily Telegraph is our reporter Daniel Sheridan's dispatch from the recently recaptured towns of Andrivka and Lipivka. Daniel spoke to residents who lived under Russian military occupation. These are their stories. Can we start with um, Tatiana Oleksienko? Tatiana's story was really devastating and it is what made the front page today. So she lives in a town called Andrivka, which is um, about a two and a half hour drive from Kiev. So the town was occupied by Russians and she decided to go seek refuge in a neighbour's cellar along with her daughter, her granddaughter. And in total there were 10 people because she was there with some neighbours as well. Um, But food started to run low. So she went above ground uh, to go and search for food. She knew she had some products in her in her own cellar at home and when she went to retrieve these products she saw that her home had actually been overtaken by the Russians they basically moved in and she saw that they were digging around in her back garden so she went to ask them which I think is quite brave in itself because we know that Russians have been indiscriminately killing civilians so to even take it upon yourself to approach the soldiers and she did and they she said that they started digging in her garden with shovels and then they brought in a tractor and she asked them what are you doing and they explained to her that they would they had been instructed to dig a grave and it would be for her and her village her fellow villagers and she was understandably really shaken telling me this uh, like physically shaking she was very emotional. Um, by the time we finished speaking, she was just sobbing. Um, she just said that once upon a time, her garden had been a beautiful place. It had cherry trees, apricot trees, 
apple trees and all of them have been ripped up from the ground in order for the Russians to bring this tractor over to start digging a, a massive pit. And it's clear evidence of war crimes. What they were intending to do was to perform genocide, to kill a number of civilians and to hide the evidence inside a mass grave. And the only reason they didn't succeed is because the Ukrainian forces managed to come in and liberate the village, which in itself is quite challenging for Tatiana to get her head around because it's only such a stroke of luck that she wasn't murdered because of the Ukrainian forces coming to their rescue. And I think that's something she's having to weigh up now and why it's so traumatic is that kind of knowledge that you very nearly almost die, like a near-death experience, I suppose. You also spoke to Vitaly Cherkasov, a, a member of Andrivka's village council, and he, he told you a little bit about the experience of women and children during the occupation. What did he say? It was through this conversation with Vitaly that we ended up learning about Tatiana's back garden. He mentioned that the school over the road from where he lived had been occupied by the Russians and they had essentially held a number of women and children hostage in the school so that the Ukrainians wouldn't fire at them. He said that he had heard that whilst keeping these women and children as hostages, they'd raped them. That hasn't been verified, you know, not a lot of things have been verified, but that is what he had heard himself. And a number of villagers had heard this. I think just the barbaric treatment of civilians is what is so difficult to get one's head around because, you know, in, in war, it, it, it should be the civilians that are, are attacked. They should be left alone and yet they were just indiscriminately targeting them and 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 torturing them and 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 children as well which is which is so sad knowing that they didn't they didn't stop at anyone and there was some resistance and determination to rebuild you spoke to a woman uh, called Olha who who decided she who said to you that she would not leave and she would rebuild what what is she saying how is she going to do that she was so remarkable she came out to speak to me and brought with her a portrait of her son who's currently fighting on behalf of the Ukrainians and she was stoical her entire house is rubble I went inside with her to look there is a a sort of frame that still exists you can make out what part of the house might have looked like everything is you 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 literally walk over chunks of brick as you pass through what was once her home I'm not even sure where she's sleeping there's there's nothing in there she had a car that was parked in her garage and it's a burnt shell but despite all of this she is not going to leave the town she said that if she were to do that it's like the Russians win all over again So she is determined to rebuild. And she says she doesn't care how long it takes. She will make this plot of land her home again. And I think that kind of resilience is so symbolic 
of the Ukrainian spirit. You know, when this war even began, everyone said, well, the Ukrainians are never going to win because of, I think I said it, the Russian army, the Russian military is just going to swamp them. How can they possibly compete? And yet they have, and they've won in some areas. It was really encouraging to hear her still have hope despite all this devastation. And that is something that does permeate throughout my reporting. Going back to Fessiana, who had the um, grave dug in her back garden, when we finished speaking and when I'd managed to calm her down because getting her to talk about everything was very distressing and she was hysterical by the end of the interview. Um, She then invited me back. She said, please, in peacetime, come be my guest. And it just, it shows that she is still looking for what the future holds. And despite all the trauma that they've gone through, there's still positive days ahead. And that's really remarkable and something nice to take away from all of this. Turning to uh, Lepivka, which was also under Russian occupation, recently liberated. You write that a grave containing the bodies of six Ukrainian fighters was, was opened, and there was a rather remarkable story about an exchange with Russian troops and then the, 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 the exhumation of the, of the bodies to the families. What, what happened? A fighting broke out between Russian and Ukrainian soldiers, and six were killed. I think it was around the um, 11th of March. And a woman called Tonya, who lived in the village who who lives in the village went and approached the soldiers with her neighbor and said please don't shoot with civilians would you mind if we repatriated our fallen men so that we can give them a proper burial please don't shoot at us if we go and do this can we have your agreement and to their surprise the russian soldiers agreed to let them do this and you know, by that courageous act, they were able to go and collect the bodies of these six soldiers and take them to a safe place, as it were. They created a communal grave in the back of a church. And when we drove to the Pivka yesterday, the bodies were being exhumed and they were all still in their military fatigues. And a lot of people had turned up to, I suppose, pay their respects, including the father of one of the soldiers, a 24-year-old man. And it was really moving to see them, to see, you know, the friends of families kind of hugging each other and and then um, their bodies being so carefully placed into these white body bags. They were lined up in a row beside the church. And then put into an ambulance um and we spoke to the father of one of the boys and he was just really upset and I said to him at the end how how do you feel and he just just looked at me and said how do you think I feel and I thought yeah I can't I can't imagine it's it's kind of one of those stories where something great came out of it in the sense that they were able to rescue these bodies and preserve them and give them a decent burial but ultimately why were they even having to fight in the first place you know this whole Russian invasion what 
what was it for? With the Russian retreat and the Ukrainian advance and the fact that they've recaptured these towns, people have moved back, people have gone back to, the, to, their, own, to their old homes. And you spoke, I believe, to uh, a man called Valery Timchuk, who, who, had, who had fled um, Lepivka, and now he's returned. What did he find? I've said this before, a number of towns remind me of suburban towns in the UK, from the decor inside to the very aesthetic of the home. And his home was no different. And he had obviously spent a lot of money doing his home up and taken great pride in it. And it was, it looked like a drug den. There was awful graffiti scrawled on the wall um, of, of his garage door, which said, boom, it was, this was in Russian, boom. Then it said, sorry, we didn't want to, but you made us do it effectively. Um, you know, playing into this whole neo-Nazi diatribe. His house was just torn apart, turned upside down. He told me all his gold had been stolen, all his valuables. If you went into the kitchen, cupboards were smashed, broken glass absolutely everywhere. Fires had been lit on top of his bed so the mattress was completely burnt through uh, curtain rails were hanging from the ceiling mirrors had been smashed they'd obviously when I say turn the place upside down looking for things because there were, every single cupboard and shelf that had once contained clothes all of those items were just splayed on the floor um, there was rubbish beer bottles cigarette butts it just, it was awful. It smelt really bad. And, um, but in the lounge, his, the chandelier light that he had still hung perfectly intact. And that was, and, you know, you could see the kind of style of his sofas that he'd chosen. And, and that's what I mean about being able to see how someone had taken pride in their home and then to have it just destroyed. He also had been shot. He'd been hit on his face. He had three bullet wounds. And he'd managed to survive. So he's really, he's really been through it. And he was just saying, I don't even know where to begin. He's not living there right now. It's, it, again, it's uninhabitable. But he intends to come back and forth to try and get it back into a livable state. But it's going to require a massive cleanup operation because of the, the state that they left it in. The, the final person to bring up, I think, um, at the end of your report, uh, 87-year-old Klavdia Voskoboynikova, who, who did stay behind in occupied Korolivka, and she stayed behind to feed the dogs. What was her story? She was a very sweet old woman, and she told me that this was her home and she wasn't going to be kicked out of it by anyone. Her she has two children, a son and a daughter, and they try to evacuate her and she wouldn't go anywhere. The reason why she ended up feeding these, these abandoned dogs is because most people did flee the village and they left behind their animals in doing so. So she's become the kind of owner of, of a number of dogs that were very sweet. But it was, it was so sad going and talking to her because her house was 
absolutely freezing it was colder inside her small cottage than it was outdoors and it's it wasn't warm yesterday she has no electricity no gas so no heating every single one of her windows has been blown out so she it's just cold air coming through there are curtains but the cold air makes its way through and just the house felt like a chiller and people are bringing her food you know dried goods and whatnot but obviously she doesn't have any way of cooking anything other than eating canned goods and there was just something about I asked her what she did with her days and obviously anything she does has to work around daylight hours because there's no way of reading a book or or watching tv because she doesn't have a light to read and she doesn't have electricity to watch television so she just kind of explained that she doesn't really do anything in the evenings and eventually night comes and and then it's morning and she starts all over again and I just felt it was such a kind of sad existence right now it was a real insight yesterday into how this war has affected the individual civilians what infuriates me is seeing people still denying that Russia is committing these atrocities I've already been tweeted by a number of people today claiming that it's lies what I'm reporting and this journalism is so integral if we're to prove what atrocities what genocide what war crimes Putin is committing and I think I saw with my own eyes a grave that had been dug in a woman's back garden to bury civilians. That is a war crime. They just didn't succeed in following it through. Yesterday was really hard. Um, it when you when you're seeing people sobbing, it's really hard not to be moved because they're people and. You'd have to be a psychopath, I think, to not feel sadness when someone's stood there just crying so intensely. Um, but I suppose that's why you just have to keep doing what we do and reporting their stories. And I'm so grateful that The Telegraph put it on the front page because it shows it's harrowing and it it shows how important it is to to be documented. As for myself, I'm just really grateful that the the villagers are willing to talk and still share their experience because it's obviously traumatic to have to relive it. And it's very kind of them to be willing to talk to the media. Tom Nichols. You've written this analysis of a a drone video of a lone Ukrainian tank taking on an entire Russian armoured vehicle convoy. Um, It's on the Telegraph website. You can read it yourself if you're listening. Um, There's lots of video. There's lots of um, analysis. What's going on and why does it matter? What does it show us about the two armies? 
So this incident happened on March 31st on the road, about 40 k's east of Kiev. There's a large Russian column, mainly BTR, the, the Bronny transporter, the people carriers, armoured personnel carriers, um, but with some with some tanks uh, in amongst the convoy, uh, moving along a uh, looks like a paved road, but it, it's certainly a, a main a main uh, roadway. Um, and then the, the drone footage shows a a single Ukrainian T-64 tank um, taking them taking them on. Uh, now we we we've got to be very careful about verifying what we're seeing and not reading too much into it because we we don't get a we get a good view but we can't see everything. So when we say lone Ukrainian tank, that's because that's all we can see, and those are the the, the rounds that we can see being fired are only from that vehicle. Um, but it looks like in in military terms a classic sort of meeting engagement, which is uh, basically two forces up. Don't know the other one's there, and then suddenly, suddenly, su- a surprise to find to find the other one. And in in British British Army teaching um, a meeting engagement, it's the side that that gets the best situational awareness, works out what the hell's going on, decides what they're going to do, and and then enacts that plan quicker will win generally because it's a like I say it's, it's a sudden shock, and the side that can manoeuvre quickest and get into a position to do something um will generally have the initiative and and will win of course there's a big numbers numbers part to that and, and in this uh, in this episode there are i mean about 20 vehicles we can see and it and the column could be longer it all depends on on uh, we, we only get a couple of minutes worth of video and against one tank but we see a, a t64 tank move into position very quickly um quite a good position actually in amongst some buildings so it's it's covered from covered from view um and fire from the from the road um, no overhead protection so the crew's obviously got no time to think well they you know have the russians got any airborne assets drones or anything else that could could spot them from above they haven't got time to to think about that they've just got to get into a position quickly uh, and engage and one of the reasons that um, that I've assessed that it was it was a, a meeting engagement is the fact that the the tank, the Ukrainian T sixty four first first fires over its over its right side, so it gets into position and immediately opens fire. Um, now, as I've, as I've said before, the the majority of the armor on a tank is in the the frontal sort of sixty degree arc. If you're standing on the top of a turret and you hold your arms out from sort of ten to two, that's where the armor is on the the front of the turret, the front of the tank. The, the very front of the flanks of the tank. So the sides, the belly, the top uh, and the rear are are exposed uh, with very little armour. So if you're going to if you're going to attack something, you want you want to have your main armour facing the enemy. So the fact that this tank is able to or, or gets into position and, and fires over the side indicates to me that it was it was you know, decided to be done in, in haste. Also, that first round misses. It, it, it fires about 150 metres uh, against vehicles on the road, misses them and explodes um, to the rear in some in some wood on the other side of the road. That's that's quite telling as well. The fact that we see an explosion suggests that it's using um, high explosive shell. I know this might sound might sound obvious, but there are um, there are basically two types of round that a tank a tank would fire. Two two main types. So a high explosive shell, which is a, a as I suggest you, it's, it's full of explosive. It will cause a great big bang. You use that against soft skinned vehicles, against personnel, against um, bunkers, um, buildings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. An anti tank round is completely different. An anti tank round that is fired by a tank is just a long dart, um, about a foot long, a couple of inches in diameter, um, and they are incredibly dense material. Um, in the West, we used to use depleted uranium. That's going out of favour. 
but you need something incredibly uh, strong to withstand the 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 impact basically of hitting hitting a hitting a tank and the idea with those things is that, that they perforate the tank they go in one side and come out the other and they're going so fast above 1500 meters a second so almost a mile a second they enter what's called the hydrodynamic regime and and, and that is that the chemical properties and and please do at me on this please do kind of go onto it because i'm you know I, this is what i remember from my tank days and and most of that went straight over my head but you know what i do remember is the hydrodynamic regime is when the chemicals of the metals um because uh, because of the force the kinetic energy that's imparted into that dart at 1500 meters a second the 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 metals act basically like water and the and the the super dense um dart is able to go through the metal armament of the tank through into and out the other side and it's going so fast, it's just dragging a bit like the sort of wake in, in you know, when, when, you're, when you're driving along or you're, you're flying along or what have you. Um, the wake behind it just drags all the rubbish from the outside and from the inside of the tank turret um, into, into the turret and through the other side. So the inside, the behind armour effect, as, as the military term is, it's basically like setting off a shotgun inside uh, the turret or like a grenade going off. There's just stuff going everywhere. So the crew are probably killed by that. What also happens is because the dart's going so fast, uh, it increases the the pressure. There's a big pressure wave which increases the temperature, and that sudden increase, rapid increase in temperature, can set off any charges inside the the tank that's just been hit. So it will suddenly suddenly flare up all the explosive charges in that turret will, will suddenly go up, and that's why we see the. Um, Russian tank turret throwing contest that we've been witnessing for the last few weeks. You see these turrets being blown off and hurled across, um, you know, tens of meters on occasion and la- landing landing elsewhere. It's because the the explosive charges inside the tank itself, rather than the thing that's hit it, have all gone off. So, sorry, a long way of saying that dart does not have any explosive charge in it itself. It's just a really really heavy, dense metal um, dart going through a tank. So there are no explosions, which is why we can tell that the T-64 here is firing high explosive shells. It then fires again, manages to hit a BTR-82, a tank, uh, you know, an armoured personnel uh, carrier. Um, could have up to up to about 10 people inside, possibly. Um, that vehicle starts burning. We then see a number of things happening. So the, the convoy pushes on. One of the standard drills would be to push through the, the area of contact. If you don't think you're going into a wider ambush and you've just passed the the um, the stopping group uh, and you're about to wade into the range of the killing group, uh, you just keep going. Just get out of the contact zone as quickly as possible. So the majority of the vehicles do that. Um, some vehicles stop to the rear of the column and um, infantry get out and start moving through to the area of where they think the firing is coming from. Other BTRs start laying down fire into likely areas of, of, uh, of where... Um, they think the the enemy might be firing at them. The Ukrainian tank might be firing at them from. The first few shots are are wildly inaccurate, but that's I mean they're not aimed shots. You're just you're just trying to lay down fire, um, and then eventually they do. After a couple of couple of seconds, the T sixty four fires another round, which again misses. But by then um, it kicks up so much dust and it actually collapses part of the building next to it. So the uh, Russian BTR crews can then see where the firing is coming from. So they start laying down pretty accurate fire, although it doesn't look as if anything actually hits the T-64. 
also meanwhile to the to about 75 meters to the left of the tank the t-64 um the russian infantry have, have got their bearings they've dismounted they've got shoulder launch anti-tank missiles and they fire one one round off but as i said at the start the t-64 has sighted itself pretty well and even though the soldier the russian soldier can clearly see the tank the missile um, they don't just fire. They don't just go down a, a straight sort of laser beam. They do. They do wobble around a little bit until they come under control, and it's quite uh, a, a close contact. So that the missile just sort of wobbles slightly, a couple of couple of meters to one side, and, hit, and hits a building. So it doesn't actually hit the tank. Um, that that is where the video ends. So we don't know if the T sixty four is is destroyed, or if it manages to get out of there, or how many other um, Russian vehicles are are engaged. So we don't know. So this is this is just one minor sorry no, i shouldn't say minor it was very serious obviously but but it, it it was a tactical action a very small very low level tactical action in one corner of ukraine taking place over over a couple of minutes um but it it just speaks of the the gritty nature of this war because there must have been thousands of these types of actions if 29 russian battalion tactical groups have been wiped out i mean this is what this is what this war is it's close. I mean, the, a tank tank range is you know, two kilometers planning range. No, no problem at all. That's what you'd be. That's what you'd expect to be able to engage another vehicle at. So this is about 150 meters. This is about as this is like a quick draw for tanks. Um, so it, it does speak of the the desperate and fierce defense that the Ukraine forces have put up to just just see an opportunity get into the best position they can and start opening up and, and, and take their chances, basically. Um, it also speaks of uh, Russia still still using these roads, as the, the Western official briefed yesterday. They're still using roads. They've, not, they've got no flank protection until they have to stop and debus, uh, get the infantry out to cover the flanks, to go and you know, interdict or go and stop the threat. They've got no air cover. Um, so we're now six, seven weeks into the war, and they're doing the same things that they were in the very first few days. So I'd caution against reading too much into it about about grand tactics. But it is interesting that that they're still doing the same things. Um, and and it speaks of the, as I say, that that Ukrainian resistance, that the having a go, seeing an opportunity, putting themselves in a position against overwhelming odds. Uh, we don't know what happened, but I'd be very surprised if the T-64 got out of there. Um, and it, it's 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 amazing to see we don't we don't get to see this very often unless you unless you're there so it is it is quite telling um it also speaks of the of the threat to civilians because you've got the ukrainian tank firing high explosive rounds that miss and then go and i mean the, the two we can see explode in an area of sort of scrubby woodland um but there are there are buildings all around the place and some of them are burning so clearly something's happened before this and also the Russian forces fire back, um, as, you, as you'd expect. They're under contact. They'll, they will fire back into areas of, of likely uh, firing positions. Um, and they themselves, those rounds are going to land somewhere. And there's buildings all around. So it just speaks of, of how dangerous it is for civilians to be in these areas um, and how, how it's just got to, we've got to get this thing stopped as soon as possible because um, you start flinging heavy metal around, then the wrong people are going to get hit.
Thank you very much, Tom. I think you answered every question I had before 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 I before I even said it. So thank you. That was a that was absolutely fascinating, and it was really good to get your your take on some of the on on some of the visuals we're we're getting out of this conflict. Um, I don't know if before before we go to questions from the listeners, I don't know if Theo or Francis wants to come in on any of that. Um, I would just add, is extraordinary footage, and and Dom's um, summed it up and analyses it masterfully in the article. So I would highly recommend that people read it. Um, just one final thought on that uh, from me. I read a fascinating piece of analysis that was talking about why, effectively, why Russian armor has been so bad in this conflict. We've spoken previously about how Putin idolizes the tank given its significance in the Russian victory or Soviet victory, should I say, in the Second World War. It has a huge place in the national memory in Russia. But actually, the Russian tank corps is really a sort of superficially reformed soviet army and as a result of that it has several crucial deficiencies the soviet military and i didn't really appreciate this was designed for nuclear war namely it was designed or or, uh, that and and pacifying satellite states and those are obviously two very different things uh than traditional warfare that we are now seeing in ukraine particularly on the nuclear war point these these the the old vehicles that that have you know are are the former models of the versions that we see today were effectively designed to um advance over nuclear you know sites that had been been already attacked by nuclear warfare so they were designed to be more effective against resisting radiation than they were bullets and it was for this reason that when you look at footage of Afghanistan and Chechnya quite often the soldiers are riding on the uh, armor rather than being on the inside because actually it was seen as not being particularly effective at resisting small arms fire Um, so these tanks were very very uh, were designed for a different type of warfare than than in the Soviet era and these are the kind of tanks that have been inherited now that are not actually up to the standard that is required in modern day conventional warfare and I just say I thought it was an interesting point to reflect on um, as we consider the Russian military story of the conflict so far thank you very much francis um so just before we finish we've got a couple of questions from from listeners i think the first one is interesting because it speaks to some of the diplomatic updates and news we've been talking about this is from this is from david he says could i ask why russia is still a veto member of the un security council i don't know who wants to take that one theo or francis maybe yeah it well it's because um the only way you can chuck someone off the the Permanent Security Council. There's only five members, Russia, China, US, UK and, and France. The, the only way you could get someone off it is if there's a Security Council vote. And obviously Russia has a, a veto on it. So it's not going to vote itself off. And Zelensky uh, was addressing the UN this week and saying that, pointing out that this system is broken, that either it needs to be overhauled or or ditched entirely so that's why it's still on the that's why it's still on the the security council and that's why it's going to remain on on the security council unless something really drastic happens though there is a vote happening today it it may already have happened as as we're speaking um about voting russia off the uh un 
Human Rights Council, which is possible to do and, and has happened before in, in the case of Libya. So that, that may happen, though obviously it's nowhere near as influential or uh, as significant as if, it, as if it was removed from the Security Council. Thank you very much, Theo. And uh, a question I think is aimed, which is aimed more at Dom. On the map, this is a question from Chris, who says, on the map, it looks like Ukraine's coastline can never be secure so long as Russian forces occupy Crimea. Do you agree? Yeah, I've been thinking about this one. I mean, it depends what you mean by secure, <laughs> which is a you know, massively loaded term. I mean, it's a, it's a long coastline. Uh, Crimea is actually not, it's not an insignificant uh, piece of geography. But let's think about what you what you need to do so so the the suggestion there is that that the russian black sea fleets could be um could be sunk um and we you know ukraine could could fire off some missiles uh, entirely possible yeah of course there's there's anti-ship missiles there are some reports that the british harpoon anti-ship missile has been sent to ukraine i think that has been discounted so if you see that around social media i think that's largely um discredited uh I mean, it'd be very interesting if that is the case, but I've not seen anything to, to verify that. But yeah, of course, there, there are anti-ship missiles. Um, ships are incredible military platforms. So to be able to to knock one of those out um, or to, to threaten it such that it, it stays well out of the way of a, of a, of a combat zone, then, then terrific. But let's think about how you do that. Before you, before you hit something... And by hitting it, you've got the, the, the missile's got to work properly. It's got to guide properly. It's got to get to the right place. It's got to have enough fuel. It's got to have enough explosive that, that it can do do some damage when it gets there. But that explosive can't be so heavy that it can't fly more than ten meters. All these kind of things. But let's say let's say you can hit something. To be able to hit something, you've got to you've got to see something. So you've then got to have eyes either on the water, under the water, on land, in the air, satellite. You've got to have some some kind of um, some, something that's capable of of seeing a target, seeing a, a Russian ship, and then working out exactly where it is uh, in terms of in terms of coordinates, being able to to literally know where it is on the map and communicate that back down to the missile. And then before you do that, before you can actually see something, you've got to be watching. You've got to be watching everywhere. I mean, it's a big old coastline, um, and to have this. So what you need is a, 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 an entire surveillance network covering all aspects of that um of that coastline with such um sorry military words coming up such granularity um such detail to be able to see see where ships are you've got to be watching the whole time um and then when you see something you want to be able to zone in and and get the coordinates and then you've got to be able to pass those coordinates to to a missile battery that can do something about it so what i'm suggesting is that that whole system which is entirely possible i mean that's basically an air defense system it's a ship miss system it's what a soldier does when when it looks out of his turret and sort of scans the ground in in front of him or her i mean but that that surveillance system is very very complex and sophisticated and therefore expensive so it is entirely possible for ukraine to have a fully swept up knitted together um system whereby it can threaten the black sea fleet but it would probably break the bank to do it and and at what cost if you do that are you able to defend the skies elsewhere in the country are you able to um, buy lots of um, rifles uh, good rifles or do you go for the the second second best the second most cheapest option never forget that your your weapon has been supplied by the lowest bidder was another great military expression we 
Oh, how we joked. Um, but yeah, so so these things are very, very expensive, these systems. So yes, a long, long answer to a short question. It is possible, but it's very, very expensive and and probably beyond the um, the military sophistication for for what Ukraine can afford right now or has been able to afford up to now because it just wouldn't have been able to do anything else. I hope, I hope that helps. If it doesn't, please please do. Uh, let's carry on the chat. Um, get a hold of me in the usual ways and we'll, we'll carry this on. But uh, yeah, that'll be my view. Thank you very much, Dom. And thank you, David and Chris, for sending in those questions. And do if you do have questions to our experts, please email us as well, podcast at telegraph.co.uk. Um, can I get Theo, Francis and Dom, just quickly, your, your final thoughts of things to look for uh, for the rest of the day in the next few days? I, th- I think the rest of the day in the next few days as I said before, it's going to be what is coming out of these previously Russia-occupied areas and we get a real sense of of what has been happening there the last few weeks while there has been this information blackout and these reports will go towards prosecuting whoever needs to be prosecuted for, for war crimes and getting a real sense of what this, this war has been for civilians on the ground. Um, my final thought is just picking up on something that Theo said earlier on when we were talking about the the United Nations veto um, of the Security Council. It's very interesting that uh, since its conception in in 1946, it has been used, the veto, as quite a considerable weapon by, I mean, you could say all five powers for various different reasons, but particularly by... Russia, or the Soviet Union as it was then. So the, re- of the, the veto has been used 293 times in its history. Russia slash the USSR have used that of those 120 times. The UK has only used it 29 times. So I just thought that was quite revealing and, and speaks to the challenges posed by um, David with his question. That the... It is very difficult to to change the geopolitical landscape as long as uh, and to punish nations like nations like Russia that, that, that are committing these atrocities um, in, in in ways that would be seen as as, as effective and and, and um, being and unified as long as this veto exists. But whether we will see changes to that, uh, I think, is, is, is unlikely. Um, but certainly it's interesting, isn't it, that the ground does seem to be shifting on this and, and a lot of interesting backroom conversations are, are happening and are taking place as we speak. And so I would just be just uh, watch this space. That would be something for, for thinking very, very long term, that perhaps we may well see some changes to the, to the UN Security Council um, uh, long term, because clearly in its current incarnation, one could argue that it is is not operating as effectively as perhaps it should be in these situations. Thanks, Francis. And Dom Nichols, would you like the final words? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'd say keep your eyes on the Donbass. A sudden Russian push there in the next few days, I would suggest, would not speak of a nimble, agile military with uh, unity of command. I think that would speak of panic for all the reasons that we've, we've said earlier on. And perversely, I think the Ukrainians would welcome... Um, an early fight uh, in the Donbass region. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.